Wake up. Freedom's on the rise. The search for the roots of AI and cybernetics takes us to the era of the Second World War and the scientists of that time, Alan Turing. This 20th century genius was relatively unknown until recently when his image on the 50-pound British currency note and the film The Imitation Game reintroduced him to the modern world. Yet the very interesting pursuit of Turing that affects life today and beyond, that is his contribution to modern computing, AI, and his associations with groups like Ratio Club and Macy Foundation Conference is less discussed. The attempts to make the connection between computers and neurons in the human brain go long before smartphones and VR technologies. In the mid-1930s, Turing was known only for his paper on computable numbers with an application to the Entscheidungsproblem, or decision problems. In this paper, he proved that some purely mathematical yes-no questions can never be answered by computation. Some decision problems are undecidable. Society today is already focused on unilateralism, with a human value judged by productivity. But in the hands of a computer system, the society might turn more efficient, but the meaning of being human would be lost forever. These findings make us think why Turing and other members of cybernetics were not just studying the working of the human brain, but trying to discover its control switch. What was their end goal? To know the end goal, it is important to learn the beginning, as that it is who patronized these conference in her book, The Molecular Vision of Life, Caltech, the Rockefeller Foundation, and the Rise of the New Biology, Lily Kay discusses the interest of Rockefeller Foundation in the controversial studies of eugenics and an agenda to control overall the functions of society. They wanted to search the patterns and what makes life tick in humans, plants, and animals, not just for its knowledge, but for social engineering purposes. The nature of the Macy's meeting was always secretive, conducted in the hotel rooms and it is on record that the papers released to the press were heavily redacted, omitting objectionable ideas presented by some members. The club faded out in 1955, shortly after Turing's death, and although Turing never actively attended the meetings, it is clear that his research was the foundation of the Macy's conferences. But it is unclear why Turing never visited the conference and why he never mentioned McCullough in his research. Although the entire cybernetics movement was based on the principle of looking at the human brain as Turing's machine, a machine that will achieve the final goal when properly commanded with a clear set of instructions. These ideas of form and finality of thought in the brain via set patterns of reward and feedback go back to philosophical pursuits of Plato and ideas of Logos. Logos, religiously known as the Word of God, is philosophically defined as the word or form which expresses the thought. Similar to Turing's studies of finding the patterns and structures of nature, which theologically might be the touch of God, and philosophically the initial point or logos of the functioning of the whole universe, these principles formed the basis of McCullough and Pitt's paper, which led to the cybernetics group study of the human brain as a Turing machine. 
Therefore, in cybernetics, the goal-seeking mechanism brought in a sense of purpose in which humans, plants, and animals interact with their environment through feedback, input, and output that form the basis of decision-making. Norbert Wiener, the father of cybernetics, once quoted, As in all transmissions, the protein-based genetic transmission could be ultimately explained by information theory, the proposition of genetic transmission of information through heredity, in turn, suggests that these preoccupations gave rise to a new meta-theory of systems in quest for total control. Could this lead now to the seemingly inevitable synthesis of man and machine, leading to a new species of transhuman? In theory, the process started when the cybernetics group studied the human brain as a Turing machine. This study of the human brain in pure logical calculus and machine terms devoid the essence of mind and spirit, making the human brain to be a binary yes or no, all or none, input and output, working and manipulated by feedback. So only when human brain and machine work in synergy that the theory of cybernetics achieves its practical goals. In the following decades, many intimate minds like Heidegger, Goddard Gunther, and Arnold Gellin criticized the pursuits of cybernetics as the end of philosophy and the objectification of mind and spirit. They claimed that human beings integrated with this theory must necessarily become different human beings. Pierre Bordeaux even suggested that after the mineral, plant and animal kingdoms will rise a kingdom in which the human will only participate in a phenomenon. So this rapid growth of AI leading us to a paradoxical utopia dystopia in which accidents, poverty, hunger is curtailed by the new AGI, but which has lost the meaning of what it is to be human, in which the human beings are divided into categories of productivity, but the whole species itself is subpar to the new, higher, synergetic species of human brain and artificial intelligence? Are we setting foot in the brave new world of a stable but stale life in which the mere idea of free will is long forgotten? These are the questions we need to ask ourselves and find their answers. He talked about artificial intelligence at Google being a living entity. And if they pull the plug, it would be like killing it, right? It'd be like taking a life. We've reached that point, huh? Right. And then there's also like the cybernetics, transhumanism, technocracy that he's talking about. It gets to the point 84 episodes in. It's like, it's not even like shocking that these things are going on. Let me give you a little history about where these things came from. So you can understand where they're going. Back in 1986, this gentleman right here, I think that's him, he wrote a book called Artificial Intelligence and Expert Systems Sourcebook. And it's about neural networking. Now, back in these days, people were still playing like, let me get that focus locked in for you so you guys don't get motion sickness. There you go. There you go. All right. So back in that day, people were still playing Atari 2600. Uh, the home computing market is basically still non-existent. Somehow this guy was able to write a book. It's got a nice uh, index in it, but that's not my point. From that, you get the idea of fuzzy logic. Now, the father of fuzzy logic was a guy named Latfi Zadi, or you could say it's Zeta, maybe. I've never met the man, but this guy was a student of his, and he 
he, Earl Cox, wrote this book, The Fuzzy Systems Handbook, a practitioner's guide to building, using, and maintaining fuzzy systems. They need to create fuzzy systems to create the AI, to create the cybernetics, to create the transhumanism. It's all fuzzy logic, right? So I got a bunch of other books on fuzzy logic. This isn't the time for that either. This is the point. This is their goal. This is a book called Beyond Humanity, Cyber Evolution and Future Minds. It was written in 1996 by Earl Cox and Gregory Paul. Now, right around that time when it was coming out and uh, this guy had advanced manuscripts to it, his name was... uh, I think his name was Steven Spielberg. And when he took over Stanley Kubrick's AI project, when Stanley Kubrick uh, stepped away from that, because I think he died, uh, it was Spielberg who had referenced this book and his version, where if you watch that creepy movie, by the way, you'll see like the goal of humanity is to have uh, a robotic teenage boy that never ages. So there's a heavy yeah subtext and if i dare say so an arthur c clark subtext yeah you know anything about clark outside his writings there's a reason he lived over in the south it was also a strange production because didn't they have a weird uh they had a director switch over halfway yeah 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 because stanley Stanley. we're not talking about wag the dog stanley who gets killed we're talking about stanley kubrick who just happened to die after they told him to cut parts out of his movie all right so in this beyond humanity and future evolution you see like it's all there's not a lot of great pictures but it's all philosophy uh, and and technology and how they can do this right so i met earl cox one time and i asked him like hey you know this stuff and computers and ai and all this sort of stuff and he's like oh well that's that's like obsolete already and i said what do you mean it's obsolete like you're you know you're writing about like you know he goes no we're working on biological computers now this was 20 years ago They're working on biological computers, not even silicon computers anymore. They were learning how to program cells like computer programs, right? That's not going to have anything to do tonight with some of the clips you're going to see, especially the one from the X-Files. It won't have anything to do with that. I promise. Other thinkers like Norbert Wiener, um, you know, if you look at the early Macy conferences went on for over a decade, uh, especially the ones in the 50s, they were already... Uh, sort of hypothesizing that, or rather theorizing, I should say. Can you explain for the audience, Tony, what the Macy conferences were? Macy conferences, I think, were, I don't know if they lasted for 12, 15 years, but they were basically a bunch of elites getting together, talking about the future of technology and how that would impact the world. Uh, And basically, a lot of it had to do around cybernetic systems, cybernetic theory, which some of the innovators were, for example, Norbert Wiener. Um, There were uh, a number of other uh, Operation Paperclip <laughs> associated individuals with that with that think tank. It's sort of like a Here, world economic it. forum for yeah, technological yeah, yeah. elites back in the 50s and early 60s. I don't know when it stopped. I think it went on for about 12 or 15 years. Well, it's, the the ones that are me, it's the precursor to the World Economic Forum, which is started is. by the Club of Rome in a project paper that I have here in the stack in 19. You can almost think of it like this. The, the Macy conferences came like generated the basic theory and then that transferred over into limits of growth that was the publication by the club of rome and then after that you get the world economic forum and you got to remember in limits of growth we have jay forrester with his closed system energy flows diagram with pollution and population and it's everything that leads to what i was just talking about yeah and all all the theory for that was shaped 10 years five ten years before in the macy conferences all right so you guys want facts 
here's the facts. Conference topics. This is a sampling of the topics discussed each year at the Macy conferences. 1946, yeah, March, New York City. Self-regulating systems. Simulated neural networks. Anthropology and how computers might learn how to learn. Oh, didn't that, wasn't that just in the news from Luke? That's what this has been going on 60 years, everybody. Uh, uh, object perception and feedback mechanisms. Again, consciousness and computers, perceptual differences due to brain damage, evolving ethics from science, right? If you go down to the next one, teleological mechanisms, mm -hmm. gestalt therapy. If you go down to the next one in 1947, child psychology. Like, so you put all these things together and you get what they're trying to do. And it's not a good picture, but it's a picture you can look outside your window or look on TV and see it today. Oh, so it might have been incorrect. I thought it went on longer. So looking 40. Well, let's see. How was the last one? 1951, 1952, 1953. That's not necessarily all of them. Let's see. Yeah, I thought they went on much longer than that. Well, now we just helped Tony to get his facts together. Thank you, everybody. That was good exercise. 53. Okay. So it went from the 46 to 53. I thought it went from the 50s to the early 60s. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It was essentially a lead up to what became the Club of Rome. And then the manifestation of economic form. So you went from the those that created the theory for it, then instantiating that theory into the Club of Rome, limits to growth, and then from there creating a an actionable working group that can manifest that theory in the world economic form. And yeah. it's not just what that that's still you know a, a primary think tank, but no, they're but it investing goes back in to the inventions that, like the 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 Macy conferences are basically encapsulating. The invention of the transistor, the invention yeah. of the silicon chip, computers, von Neumann, von uh, Neumann John yeah. Nash, game theory, uh, James Forrester, uh, Forrester, right? Werner, and then Wiener. from there it goes into uh, Norbert Wiener. And if you want to understand like the hist, like a good oh, Gregory like, Bateson. Well, not him. only that, because Bateson goes all the way up to Ted Kaczynski. Right, if you want to check out right. something, uh, Tony, uh, I, I, I probably have it in history blueprint, but I'll look. But it was the Stuart Umpleby, Professor Stuart Umpleby, cybernetics, mm -hmm. second order cybernetics lecture series. And yeah. in that, like all these books, like you can read all these books and not get the picture, but he's like, here's what's going on. And uh, let me see if I can find that history blueprint real quick. Yeah, it's, it, I've been meaning to actually do an intermission, uh, cybernetics oh. intermission focused around. I got you right here. That and DOSNet. Uh, juxtaposing those two publications. All right, so together. they have the, uh, you guys can see that on screen. It's a six hour tutorial. Professor Stuart Umpleby delivered at WMSCI 2006. And uh, there's another one in from 2013 on Heinz and Forrester. Mm -hmm. But everyone we just talked about, here's Josiah Macy, like the, the Macy conferences, the Doomsday Equation, Cybernetics, George Soros. Because Soros uses all this stuff. He's like, the well, actually, day. real quick, George Soros. Wiener. So, like, in our four or five of the Umblebee lectures. Yes. He talks about Soros's theory on cybernetic feedback and social systems. And that's actually the part that at some point I'm going to highlight for a future intermission because that's just Soros's theory. I have it right here. Just a general theory of reflexivity. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so he has taken these ideas and played them in the market. And that's how he made his billions of dollars and being funded by the Rothschild family didn't help. Uh, didn't hurt. Uh, this is also the movie I just kind of mentioned. Das, uh, yeah. das Net by Dutz Lumbach and Dambach. Dambach. I always Dambach it. I always get his name wrong. Uh, anyway, that doesn't have anything to do with anything we're going to talk about tonight. One of the most important films. I think, I'm just going to keep past. saying that because everything we're talking about tonight all ties together, but I'm not going to make that claim. Yeah, so the I'm just key, say, no, this stuff ties together. Das there you go. Very important. Chapter two. 
Plato's Apple The Republic is Plato's greatest work. Written around 380 BC, it chronicles the philosopher Socrates' quest for the meaning of justice. To aid in his pursuit, Socrates and some friends imagine what the ideal city would be like. They verbally construct a utopia called Callipolis, hoping to find a definition of justice within it. The guiding virtue of this fictional state was to be conformity. Once perfection is attained, any deviation equals degradation. Thus, to preserve their ideal conditions, Socrates and company conclude that the government must begin to groom its citizens even prior to their birth. A secret eugenics program would be employed, ensuring that the better individuals mated with one another, while guaranteeing that society remained untainted by the blood of undesirables. Following birth, citizens were to be raised by the state, as traditional families could not be trusted to rear responsible, well-rounded citizens. This system of mandatory government instruction would be the most critical conformity assurance mechanism in all the land. While at these public schools, the children would be taught myths. However, these would not be the myths that Socrates and his friends were raised on. Tales like that of Kronos and Zeus, full of agony, disloyalty, and hatred, presented gods and heroes as fickle, dishonest, and greedy. While the traditional myths of Greece had developed organically over untold lengths of time, reflecting the slow evolution of culture, Socrates was not satisfied. Characters like Kronos, Zeus, and even Prometheus were hardly appropriate role models for the youth of a utopia. Yet Socrates fully understood the importance of myth within a social system. Because they do endeavor to explain the world, and because they do influence people's thoughts and actions, Socrates concluded that the development and dissemination of myths should not be left to chance. Instead, the government should concoct new myths, better myths, and in effect, rewrite history. Only official tales, approved by a committee for cultural creation, as it were, could be told in Callipolis. The stories taught in school would encourage proper patriotic attitudes and behaviors, and thereby raise up a dutiful, complacent citizenry. School picks up where eugenics leaves off. The root of all the state-sanctioned myths was to be the noble lie. Noble, Socrates asserted, because it would keep the citizenry in check, and thus serve the greater good. Effectively constituting a state religion, the noble lie would teach that each citizen was crafted by a monotheistic god within the depths of the earth. This would justify the belief that all individuals were born of the same parents, God and Earth, and would thus artificially cement the bonds of citizenship. Apparently, actual copulation was an awkward formality. Suffice it to say, no citizen of the perfect city would ever know who his human parents were. Furthermore, during their mythic creation, each person's soul was said to have been imbued with one of three metals, bronze, silver, or gold. One's metal corresponded to whichever of the three social classes he was destined to occupy. The lowest class, bronze, would have the most people in it, these being the laborers, merchants, and artisans. Above them, the silver class would consist of the noble warriors, sworn to monitor and protect the great city. At the very top of the pyramid were the golden ones. These were the best citizens of all, the philosopher kings. It would be they who ruled in secret, 
deciding who mated with whom and which myths were to be disseminated and which were to be censored. In Socrates' mind, the noble lie justified the whole rigid caste system from top to bottom. So long as people believe in that myth, he said, they will understand that their position in society is as unchanging as the metals in their hearts. In other words, with social engineering so effective, the very possibility of challenging the status quo would be unthinkable. By carefully observing the city's youth, the schools would discover which class each individual was naturally suited to. The children would then be sorted and trained accordingly. The bronze citizens would be provided general instruction and sent out into the workforce at age 20, enjoying the shortest school tenure of all the classes by far. The silver citizens' stay in school would last until age 30, when they had been sufficiently conditioned to act like noble dogs, loyal to the city but fierce against its enemies. The golden citizens, destined to rule over the utopia, would spend most of their adult lives in the system, becoming the most indoctrinated of all, for they were to be entrusted with the state's deepest, darkest secrets. It would not be divine fire or the knowledge of good and evil that these rulers hoarded. They were to be the guardians of the art of government itself. Socrates employed an allegory to demonstrate why only a small class of philosopher kings should rule society. He likened the state to a great ship. The masses, he said, are like the short-sighted shipowner. Politicians are like the sailors. The owner is driven by profit and short-term gain and thus the true art of sailing is lost on him. The sailors bicker back and forth, competing for the owner's favor and vying for power over one another. While they may know more about certain specialized aspects of sailing, they too are strangers to the true art. Enter the stargazer, he who Socrates compared to a philosopher. While he is mocked and ridiculed by the owner and the sailors, only he knows how to read the signs of the heavens, and only he can truly guide the ship. In society, therefore, because he sees beyond the selfish desires of the masses and the senseless quibbling of the politicians, only the philosopher is fit to rule. The ship of state allegory appears in another one of Plato's dialogues, First Alcibiades. In that text, Socrates specifically likened the philosopher king to the steersman of a ship. In ancient Greek, the word for steersman was kubernetes. This word passed from Greece into Rome, becoming gubernator, which further evolved into our word, governor. It's not difficult to see how an ancient word for a ship's pilot morphed into a modern word for a state leader, once Plato's allegory is understood. Still another modern term finds its roots in kubernetes. Cybernetics, defined as, quote, the scientific study of control and communication in the animal and the machine, unquote, also descends from the passages of First Alcibiades, see chapter 7. This allegory has certainly left an indelible imprint on history, and even today people refer to the ship of state, unaware that they're evoking an idea that's 2,400 years old. The overall thrust of the argument seems to ring true. Yes, a skilled navigator will likely be a ship's best pilot, and yes, the calm and thoughtful mind of a philosopher is probably best at dealing with important social issues. Yet one should take care not to make too much of this allegory, for it smuggles a very fatal, very utopian fallacy within it. 
In fact, it is the same mistake that underlies the entirety of Socrates' utopian state. In a word, they are both totalitarian. Societies are dynamic and constantly fluctuating. Unlike a ship, which has one definitive destination, a society has as many destinations as it has residents. The centrally managed social order implied by the ship of state allegory and mandated in Callipolis could only tie individuals down by imposing a fabricated will upon them. Under such a regime, wherein power lies with a committee of dictators who possess secret knowledge of how to run society, the people can only naively hope that their rulers are benevolent or be crushed before they can rock the boat. The utopia of the Republic is utterly devoid of change. The people, the jobs, the values, the beliefs, everything is set in stone. Foreshadowing the folly of all utopian systems to follow, Plato wrote of a state in which there could be no margin of error, no deviation from the central plan. With the one and only right way to live discovered at last, propaganda, national myths, state schools, and eugenics were all justified and deemed necessary to preserve universal conformity. There would be no room for individuals in the Republic. Each citizen is rendered a mere number, whose only purpose is to serve that magnificent abstraction called the state. But this is entirely unrealistic. People, jobs, values, and beliefs do change. Errors and deviations occur daily, and hardly anything ever goes 100% according to plan. People have passions, want families, and aren't numbers. The very structure of this utopia is internally contradictory. For the sake of the greater good, everything that makes humans human is obliterated. Censorship for the children, eugenics for the public health, forced indoctrination for the future. Callipolis is a society founded on lies, all in the name of justice. In short, the fictional republic stands on the assumption that the ends justify the means. That such a top-down, totalitarian society could last indefinitely is unlikely. For such a society to be just and benevolent is impossible. Should something like it be attempted, it could only end in disaster. Welcome back to Freedoms Rising today on this July 12th, 2022. Beautiful day, and it's Freedoms Rising episode 24. Today we'll be doing part 8 of Falling into the Movement Traps, and I'm your host, Tyler Bloyer of tylerbloyer.com. And currently we're, we've been going and doing the Freedoms Rising series. We've started that since about May 20th of 2022. We're here almost a couple months later than that, cruising along. And we'll be getting back into today the falling into the movement traps that we've been trying to avoid. The movement traps, right? But we'll be covering more of what you've heard in those opening clips. We'll cover that in a second here. We'll have different sorts of content, uh, including our coverage from the front lines of the bio war. Uh, when we can get to that episode. But these episodes of Freedoms Rising, we've been doing four episodes a week, eking out the information as I have time 
on my schedule during this time of the day to record and put out an episode. And it also helps me to keep going and not just keep piling up the information, piling up the information and eventually putting it together in an episode and putting it out, which is another way to go about it. We're trying to do a more of a trickle method and stay on point. Now, in that opening clip, you heard a video called Facts That Make You Think. That's where I got that from. And it was more included as a context and another form of history of cybernetics. And then you heard uh, after that a clip from the Grand Theft World podcast, episode 84, Assad's State of Affairs, A-S-A-D-S, the sudden adult death syndrome, I think is what they're calling the vaccine injuries these days. Or I mean, you know, just it's a natural phenomenon that's happening that has nothing to do with the uh, gene therapy, COVID-19 drugs being pushed out there, right? Nothing to do with that. So the other thing, and that's, uh, again, Grand Theft World podcast is definitely worth checking out. And something that I actually was around in the initial episodes and helped the team there kick off Grand Theft World and get it going. And since then have stepped to the side and allowed, not allowed, you know, been I've been catching up with some of those episodes recently and found them really valuable. You know, took I took some time uh, sort of not going through all the information and taking some time in the last year to not consume as much media and uh but but uh really see the value in the Grand Theft World podcast and what the guys are doing over there. So good job guys and uh there's going to be clips coming up in the show also from the Grand Theft World podcast as we continue to uncover what was also mentioned in the next clip from Daniel McCarthy's book, The Story of Nowhere on page, or on chapter two, on page 34, he started talking about uh, the origin of cybernetics and uh, coming from uh, also something that was, you know, discussed as the steersman and Kybernetes, right, that good old Kybernetes, and that relating to the word uh, gubernat gubernator, and that's where we get our word governor, and governance is to control, right? And gubernamente, the mind, it can be used as an etymological study to say that government actually means mind control. So cybernetics, meaning, you know, the control or the the influence, the operation, the feedback loops, the mechanisms that govern or control systems or a brain even right a brain system and no it's not as simple as that definition but that is interesting that those root words that's where the root of that word comes from and again daniel mccarthy's website storyofnowhere.com and you can read that entire book or listen to the audiobook that he's put out there it looks like you know totally free for people to consume, which is really an awesome deal as well. So good job there, Daniel, and thank you for putting that work out there. Now, we've been talking about uh, recently the struggle for freedom, uh, revolutionaries, revolutions. We talked a little bit about James H. Billington's book, The Fire in the Minds of Men, and we got into the introduction. Uh, I've gone through big chunks of that work in the past, and 
I think one thing that holds people up is, is that book, I think, is one of those books that's hard to find. First of all, people don't do as much reading these days either. And, you know, we're all moving in this digital direction. And it would be hard to acquire all the different works of all the different things that are discussed here or anywhere um, and be able to, you know, not everyone has... You hear me typing because I'm just doing a search to see, like, what... You know, okay, it looks like there's copies of that book out there, actually, that aren't too expensive. They're not like original copies, but it looks like, that for some reason, I thought that that book was out of print or was hard to find. Uh, maybe I should get an, a copy myself, uh, but I do have these digital copies, and that's what you can do, is try to have a physical copy to compare. But then the other thing is I use a voice aloud reader on my phone, and I use that to create basically audiobooks out of books that haven't been turned into audiobooks. And then that allows me to read through the book and consume the information instead of having excuses. So more of having like a no excuses attitude and getting the information, you know, one way or the other. And hopefully the seekers and people that are on the journey that they're on and using this podcast as a tool are using this podcast as a tool to do that as well. You know, we're getting our legs underneath us with the presenting the the mosaic or the big picture that we're trying to present. But at the same time, we're also just going through the information and making doing the same thing, being a sort of step up repeater. And that's what I consider myself as a sort of accumulator of the knowledge and then being able to step up repeater that knowledge and put it into the podcast and and even just if it's more of an objective information laying down and not necessarily trying to inject my opinion in on everything um, or my speculation, which I probably am not the best at doing that, I tend to put more of my speculative or uh, conspiracy-oriented thinking towards what we're uncovering. But as you'll see today with the article that I'm going into, the stuff we've been talking about is not conspiratorial or if we're getting into talking about eugenics or technocracy uh that's not conspiracy or it's not you know what people in the colloquial way of looking at conspiracy think that it is it's not just uh a, a bunch of lies or a, a, people weaving together things that aren't true because they're ultra paranoid a lot of the time it's things that other the general population aren't willing to look at and therefore it's you know, without doing any sort of critical thinking or research, just throw things out as conspiracy theories. And even myself, you know, I don't have, if, I, if I'm saying that and people will run with that and say, oh, Tyler is a big conspiracy theorist and he doesn't provide the information when he brings up something like 9-11 and he, and he just calls it a conspiracy because he easily believes in all the different conspiracies. And that's, you know, not not the case at all. And, you know, there may have been times in my life when that was more true than not, but we all learn and grow. And part of the quote unquote waking up process is starting to understand that the world really didn't think, didn't work the way that we were taught it was. And maybe we weren't really given the right tools along the path to understand how the world works. And there may be things that have gone on or that continue to go on and unfold that don't, you know, a simple way to put it is it just, it doesn't work the way that you thought it did, you know, and that's not conspiracy minded. And 
if, if some in some ways it does mean that we were manipulated into thinking a certain way or seeing things a certain way and that in itself is somewhat of a conspiracy right that oh well you're saying that you know that we're brainwashed and that the schools are set up to brainwash us and that the media is set up to just control the narrative and keep the people in power in power and it's like yeah that that is basically what we're saying <laughs> and uh there's a lot of evidence to prove all of that you know but today Continuing on, we learned in the last episode about utopias and these utopian visions, utopianism, and then we started to get into the second chapter about the Republic there. We we didn't go through the first chapter here in the podcast, but again, I suggest to go back and read. I'm talking about now the the book that we just heard from Daniel McCarthy on, The Story of Nowhere, and this uh, utopian thinking and where that utopianism comes from and that it's really nowhere right and that it's this place that doesn't exist but yet we can see that throughout history there have been revolutionaries or revolutions or dictators or governments that come into place and power through promising of these utopian ideals or this equality and uh you know liberty and even and um you know, this egalitarianism and now like inclusivity, right? With the World Economic Forum and what they're pushing in the Club of Rome, where these things come from and the Macy conferences that were mainly uh, concerned with cybernetics, right? And there are branches of that uh, entity, that octopus that aren't just stemming from the Macy conferences or something like that. But there is a, a continuity there through these uh, theories, and uh, then you saw in the opening clip a mentioning of how people like Heidegger saw that as the replacement of philosophy, and, you know, yeah, and then we have, you know, this technocratic dictatorship coming into to view here, and I have a new term, instead of fire in the minds of men, someone should write a book uh, called Fiber in the Minds of Men, right? Because that's where we're headed, is sort of this... Uh, this transhumanist agenda and uh instead of so instead of the revolutionaries having fire in the minds they'll have fiber in their minds you know and that there's different forms of revolution it's not just talking about the you know the types of of revolutionaries in the american revolution or the french revolution there are larger revolutions the great reset is a, a revolution against the way that the world currently works right and when when they go to if they penetrate the cabinets and when they're doing that they're talking about overthrowing this sort of current world as it is and the way that nation states are currently set up and have independence uh from one central global government and uh you know they're not necessarily out uh, picketing or burning down the castle, right? Or coming with the guillotines. But it's a, it's a different form of overthrowing the current systems and having this, what they're calling now, with the Great Reset. But then we can also see, you know, different so forms of revolution on, on a different spectrum going on with, uh, you could say, like the anarcho-capitalists, right? And... Um, their Bitcoin revolution, the monetary revolution against uh, the banks and the monetary system. 
and using new forms of currency. And, you know, if we don't understand how these things can be thwarted, manipulated, and controlled in a way that's more like controlled opposition, even if the people in that revolutionary state don't understand it, something like Bitcoin could be very much like a Trojan horse towards a digital uh, track trace database type technology, right? That would just end up being a control system to really, you know, monitor and control what people do through their activities. So you wouldn't be maybe, you know, you are a you are allowed to do certain things with your currency, if you're a good little citizen, and you do the right things, and you do all the stuff that the government wants you to do. And then uh, B, you know, you on the opposite side of that as well, since you've been speaking out against the government, or since you don't agree with, you know, our you know, vaccine mandates or whatever it is, whatever the mandate is, whatever the thing is, you know, our war with this country or what you don't agree with our propaganda. And we've, you know, found you out to be someone that we don't, you know, consider as essential. (laughs) We're going to cut you off from society. And, uh, you know, that's something that a digital currency could much more easily do. That doesn't mean that that's exactly where all the digital currencies or Bitcoin or cryptos are headed, but that, you know, we at least need to understand how some of these more technological revolutions are occurring and going on, and that the history of revolutionaries and revolutions and how they might be fomented or how they might be taken over from the inside or even started by occult forces to steer things in a certain direction, right? And so with that being said, let's move forward in the episode today. And we'll be getting back into freedoms rising and we'll be getting back to, you know, going through activism that is, I think, positive in a way that's causing real solutions in the world and what you can do and the solutions. And, you know, I know all the people that are, give us the solutions, give us the solutions. And the solution right now that we're going through that's taking not just one episode and then we'll get back to the rah, 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 right? The solution now is understanding more about uh, the situation that we're in, more about uh, revolutions through history Uh, the current revolutions, falling into movement traps, essentially, and staying out of the pitfalls that could, not just you and I, but also historically and overall as a a group of people, uh, you know, the patterns of history and the patterns that are going on now and connecting these things together so that we don't just revolve around in an endless circle that just beats us into the dirt or you know, puts us in a worse situation. It's not just a revolution around a table. Along those lines, though, what we need to understand a little bit more about, or what we'll be learning more about today, is an article here that I have from Unlimited Hangout, uh, something that we've brought up quite a bit on the show. Uh, I know there are some opinions out there about the group at Unlimited Hangout, as far as, you know, there's always going to be researchers who say that other people are stealing their work and they're reusing their work or they don't, they're, they're, they're doing a a limited hangout. They're not really covering the whole thing. Unlimited Hangout is really a limited hangout, you know, or that, that they're not seeing, you know, this and that angle, but 
this article here I thought was really well written. It says it's a 26-minute read by Matthew Iret. So let's see how I can do with that with my early morning reading speed and only a couple cups of coffee down. Beyond that, when, when we're, like I said, then we're going to kind of circle back eventually to, it, to the fire of the minds of, of men and get more into that book. I know the reason why I'm saying that is because we started out in the introduction and we really didn't finish that. Uh, again, I'm still going through parts of the uh, work that I haven't gone through that I, I am also just seeing what else is available to go over in the podcast that makes it, you know, more, uh, that it blends better and melds better. So with, with us getting into now kind of cybernetics and the scientific dictatorship and the final revolution will be an, an ultimate revolution of the scientific dictatorship where people will love their servitude. Sorry. Maybe my impression of the old uh, Aldous Huxley isn't that on point, but some of you might have caught that out there. This article that we'll be getting into now will help tie together some of the thoughts about this, uh, the, the, the com computer science aspects, but also talking about the limits of limits to growth uh, book that we've referenced here before on the show, and also that we can learn more about by going through this article and, uh, you know, the club of Rome's think tank steering committee that put forward this sort of now idealized and almost worshiped philosophy that's put down in the limits of growth, which is really a eugenics Malthusian approach to steering and controlling the world population. So a book by Matthew Iret. I read, hopefully I'm saying his last name correctly, we'll try to figure that out. Uh, the Revenge of the Malthusians and the Science of Limits. Opening the article is a little synopsis and it says, What are the roots of the technocratic and transhumanist policies currently being pushed into society? Onto. In this essay, Matthew... Irie traces two centuries of British imperial grand strategies who adopted Thomas Malthus' systems of scientific governance of useless eaters in opposition to the deeper creative impulses of the human species. Beginning with the article now. Today's world is faced with two possible future systems. On the one hand, there is a multipolar approach in defense of sovereign nation-states premised on a long-term thinking, scientific optimism, and a win-win cooperation stands as one of the possible outcomes. On the other hand, there is a unipolar paradigm of world government depopulation and zero-sum thinking. So again, this is what we've been talking about here a little bit on the Freedoms Rising, not so much about sovereign nation states, but about the, you know, there's two sides to the coin here. There's a decision that we need to make as a species, and uh, we need to decide what path we're going to go down here. So back to the article. Gaining insight into these two opposing paradigms is more important now than ever before, and one important place to start is the genesis of the ideologies that motivate the, quote, 
Great Reset Architects, unquote, who are pushing society into a, quote, fourth industrial revolution, unquote, a, quote, revolution, unquote, where it is believed that automation and artificial intelligence will render most of humanity obsolete. We are told that this post-reset age will also be a merging of humanity with machines, a future scenario heralded, heralded by the figure, figures like Elon Musk and Google's Ray Kurzweil in order to, quote, stay relevant, unquote, to the next phase of our evolution. Davos man Yuval Harari has echoed these sentiments, arguing that the levers of evolution will now be moved from the randomness of nature into God's running Google, Facebook, and the World Economic Forum. And as I was saying earlier, cutting out from the article, the fiber in the minds of men, right? That's the, the next version of the person who can write the, the neo version of the fire in the minds of men can be called fiber in the minds of men, you know, origins of the, um, the dictator, the origins of the, I'm trying to think of another word that's not optional, origins of the mandatory technocratic state, fiber in the minds of men. Okay, back to the article. And if you listen to like Yuval Harari and these and look into people like what Google uh, Kurzweil or Musk is saying about this shit. I mean, these people are batshit crazy in my opinion, but okay, let's try to leave our opinion out of it and just get through the article here. In a 2018 WEF sermon, Harari acted as a neo-Darwinist prophet in a new transhumanist age, saying, quote, we are probably among the last generation of homo sapiens. Within a century or two, Earth will be dominated by entities that are more different from us than we are different from Neanderthals or from chimpanzees. Because of the coming generations, we will learn how to engineer bodies and brains and minds. These will be the main products of the 21st century economy. Unquote. This Borg-like deterministic faith in the human-machine synthesis that pervades the thinking of all modern transhumanists is both cultish, creepy, and just plain wrong. However, without a proper evaluation of the historic roots of these ideas, which threaten to push global citizen, uh, sorry, global civilization into a dystopian nightmare, it is impossible to understand anything fundamental about the past 250 years of human experience, let alone see where the fatal flaws lie within the Great Reset transhumanist operating system. That system, of course, is simply a repackaged system of eugenics under a new name that was developed in the aftermath of World War II. Leading transhumanist godfather and, parenthetically, a president of the British Eugenics Society, unparenthetically, Sir Julian Huxley, enunciated this post-World War II objective explicitly in his 1946 UNESCO founding manifesto saying, quote, even though it is quite true that any radical eugenic policy will be for many years politically and psychologically impossible, it will be important for UNESCO to see that the eugenics problem is examined with the greatest care that the public mind is informed of the issue at stake so much that they now unthinkable may be at least become thinkable. So, 
UNESCO uh, and Huxley, we talked about we talked about the final revolution that will be impossible for man to escape. Right, his brother Aldous Huxley, sort of the you know narrator of this whole new world order philosophy, uh, which is like a worldview in itself, not just necessarily a group, but uh, an, an idea. Right, idea that uh, whose hopefully time has, has not come. But as we can see, we're sort of already living in this. Uh, back to the article, though. And I'll move on moving forward. There are a few fundamental things that should be understood about the pseudoscience of eugenics, otherwise known as, quote, the science of cleansing the human gene pool of undesirable population, unquote, which emerged at the end of the 19th century. Imagining a future age where the science of eugenics would replace religion, the school's founder, Sir Francis Galton, cousin of Charles Darwin, Mused in the nineteen in nineteen o five quote it is easy to let the imagination run wild in the supposition of a wholehearted acceptance of eugenics as a national religion unquote closed versus open systems clash in the nineteenth century that's the title of this section and then we have a picture here uh, left to right Charles Darwin Herbert Spencer and S- Sir Francis Galton who all advanced a system of biology that extended Hobbesian survival of the fittest laws of empire into all of nature. That's what the caption says under the image. And uh, this article will be in the notes, so you can go and check out those images yourself. And continuing on. The entire system of eugenics advocated by Galton, Huxley, et al., were merely a repackaging of the underlying assumptions of the theories of population popularized by the British East India Company's star economist Thomas Malthus from uh, 1766 to 1834. Malthus promoted a mathematical thesis that population levels will always tend towards geometric growth, where agricultural resources will tend to arithmetic growth resulting in relatively forecastable, uh, quote, crisis points, unquote. Malthus and his disciples, known as Malthusians, believed that social engineers representing the British Empire must use these, quote, crisis points, unquote, to scientifically manage the, quote, human herd, unquote. There's a picture of Malthus with some sort of graph showing the crisis point. Thomas Malthus and a geometric ratio, which was supposedly, quote, discovered, unquote, proving that agriculture growths arithmetically while human population growth geometrically. So it's like he proved that there would be this point of crisis, right? And I think he was way off in his theories, right? That this population point of crisis didn't happen, but this sort of Malthusian worldview is definitely still present in our modern day. Back to the article. Malthus believed that nature bestowed upon the ruling class certain tools that would allow them to accomplish this important task, namely war, famine, and disease. Malthus coldly stated the following in an, in his ninth, in his 1799 essay on population. Quote, we should facilitate instead of foolishly and vainly endeavoring to impede the operations of nature in producing this mortality. And if we dread to do frequent visitation of the horrid form of famine, 
we should sedulously encourage the other forms of destruction which we compel nature to use. In our towns, we should make the streets narrower, crowd more people into the houses, and court the return of the plague." Unquote. Taking this cold logic to its extreme, the quote, Reverend unquote, Malthus extended his logic to the practical elimination of the unfit children whose value is quote, comparatively quote, low to society. So those were the, the um, non-essential people of the Malthusian time. Uh, that, then the, the next quote, talking about that reference, quote, I should propose a regulation to be made, declaring that no child born from any marriage taking place after the expiration of a year from the date of the law, and no illegitimate child born two years from the same date, should ever be entitled to parish assistance. The infant is, comparatively speaking, a little value to societies, as others will immediately supply its place. Oh yes, quite the little useless eater. That was the finish of that quote. Continuing on with the article, Britain's implementation of Malthus's science of population management was vicious. In England, the poor laws of 1838 ensured that no state assistance beyond workhouses would be provided for masses of impoverished subjects of the empire. Between 1845 and 1851, the repeal of the Corn Laws or the Irish Potato Famine resulted in millions Irish dying of famine in the land of the plentiful harvests. At the time, free trade agreements demanded expert uh, export quotas be maintained even at gunpoint, despite mass starvation. In 1877 alone, over 10 million Indians died of British direct famines as Malthus's system was applied in full force, force and throughout the British Empire. Towards the end of the 19th century, this closed unipolar system represented one of the centralized command structures that sought to keep all global cultures and nations subdued to the demands of the, quote, the most fit, unquote. Yet its dominance was wearing thin. In opposition to the dismal science of the British social engineers, an opposing paradigm was spreading like wildfire, one which saw human the human mind and its capacities to discover laws of creation as primary to all rules who which oligarchs demanded be obeyed. Russian and Ottoman Empire had been burned badly by British geopolitical manipulations during the Crimean War. Indian uprisings had shaped the entire 1859-1861 period, and the brutalization of the Chinese in the wake of the costly Second Opium War sent shockwaves of in indignation to sympathizers across the world. Most importantly, the Union's ability to survive a four-year British-manipulated civil war, parenthetically largely due to Russia's intervention in 1863, was a game-changer, while Britain's had... While Britain's had over extended and overbloated systems of empire trembling under its own rigidity. A new system of cooperation, protectionism, rail development, industrial growth, national banking, and technological progress began to spread across the world. 
threatening to undo the closed systems of hereditary power which had maintained control for eons. The prospect of a coalition of nations developing their resources as land powers with real industrial growth, growth protectionism, protectionism and national banking procedures was anathema to the British Empire's basis of global looting, private finance, free trade, cash cropping, and a general dependency on British maritime supremacy. The next section here is called The Rise of Thomas Huxley's X-Club. Empires never disappear without a fight, and the British Empire was no exception. Before the Civil War in the U.S. had concluded, a new imperial grand strategy was reformulated in Cambridge and in London headquarters of the British Royal Society. Out of these networks came the new breed of imperial management under the form of Huxley's X-Club. And there's a link to that it referenced in 1865. And so you can read more about how X, how Huxley's X Club created Nature's Magazine and Sabotage Science for 150 years. That's what that link goes to. And it's from the Canadian Patriot, a sovereign voice in a chorus of nations. Uh, let's see, is that the same author of this? I'm trying to figure that out. Yes, it is. Uh, wait. Sorry about the pause here. I'm just trying to understand this link. And it's hard to read on this website. So it looks like it's the same author from an article written in May 13, May 13th of 2020. Um, Matt, I So you can learn more about Darwin's, Darwin's X Club there, referencing that another article that he wrote which was led by a young, talented misanthrope named Thomas Huxley, a.k.a. Darwin's bulldog. He's, Huxley was like the marketing arm of Darwin's uh, theory. Huxley was t tasked with formulating a new grand strategy to preserve the empire. Reflecting upon the growth of German, Russian, and American industrialization and cooperation, Huxley wrote in 1887 that Britain was entering upon, quote, upon the most serious struggle for existence to which this country was ever committed. The latter years of the century promised to see us in an industrial war of far more serious important than the military wars of its opening years, unquote. Knowing that most the most important level of warfare is found in the scientific conceptions held by society, parenthetically, since our standard for political self-regulation is ultimately founded upon and informed by standards of laws found in nature, Huxley's X-Club aimed to unite all the major branches, branches of physics, biology, economics, and sociology sociology under a singular coherent interpretation based on gradualistic descriptive reductionist science that would be a new unified internally consistent science that would iron out the evidence of all creative leaps which shape all living and non-living nature. This group realized that if nature could be molded and 
as a closed, decaying, and random process, then it would also be devoid of any actual notion of principle, justice, or morality. This would be a conception of nature which empires could forever justify the exploitation of their victims. Describing the X-Club's history, Jules Evans wrote, and there's a hyperlink there to a reference which goes to a Medium article. She wrote, or he, quote, Like a Roman phalanx, the X-Club defended the cause of Darwinism and scientific naturalism, i.e. the belief that God and other supernatural entities did not exist, or at least did not intervene in the natural world. The members also used their influence to support each other's work and win the top jobs for themselves and their allies. It was a new guild, a new priesthood, unquote. And then there's a picture of Huxley and Charles Darwin. The metasystems uniting all of these various branches of descriptive science would be premised on Charles Darwin's theories of natural selection and, quote, the survival of the fittest, unquote. The supposed need for human society to weed out the unfit was premised on certain fundamental assumptions, not the least of which included, one, that humanity is a system entirely shaped by material forces of environmental constraints and genetics, and that, two, that this system was fundamentally closed and hence entropic, parenthetically subject to immutable laws of diminishing returns guided by an inevitable heat death, unparenthetically. And three, that the creative forces of genetic mutations guiding the appearance of the new biological mechanisms was fundamentally random, and four, that the randomness could only be overcome by the rise of a new era of social engineers managing humanity on all levels economic, psychological, cultural, and even genetic. One of the propaganda instruments created by the X-Club was a journal called the, quote, Nature Magazine, unquote, in which, in 1869, featured articles by Huxley and several X-Club members. The deeper purpose of the X-Club and its magazine, as outlined in, 2000, in a 2013 report entitled Hideous Revolution, the X-Club's Malthusian Revolution in Science, that was a hyperlink, was geared towards the redefinition of all branches of science around a statistical empiristic Empiricist, um, empiricist interpretation of the universe that denied the existence of creative reason in mankind or nature. Science was converted from the unbound study and perfectibility of truth to the mathematically sealed, quote, science of limits, unquote. And then there's a nice picture there of the groups of the X-Club. And then, you know, going back to the opening of the article saying it's a 26-minute read. I guess like if you're speed reading inside your head, if you're reading it out loud on a podcast and chiming in, I think we've already gone like 20 minutes and it looks like I'm not even quite halfway through the article yet. <laughs> so we'll see where we finish up today as uh, time is going to be limited for me to be able to continue reading the article, but perhaps we'll pick up where we leave off with this back tomorrow because I'd rather not just skip ahead yet. So the section now we're going to read is the next section called 
Darwinism repackages Malthus. The X-Club's support of Darwinism was less a scientific decision in the respect and more of a political one. As Darwin later admitted in his autobiography, his own theories arose directly from his own study of Malthus. Quote, in October of 1838, 15 months after I had begun my systematic inquiry, I happened to read for an assessment Malthus's on population and began and being prepared to appreciate the struggle for existence which everywhere goes on from long-continued observation of the habits of animals and plants, it at once struck me that under these circumstances favorable variations would tend to be preserved, and unfavorable ones to be destroyed. The result would be that the formation of the new species, here then I had at last got a theory by which to work. Unquote. By universalizing Malthus into a living creation, the X-Club obscured the qualitative difference between humans and monkeys, which was advantageous for the empire that could only control humans when they adopt the law of the jungle as standards of moral practice and identify formation rather than anything actually moral. Although Darwin's modern defenders proclaim that the biologist was innocent of any accusations of promoting the social Darwinism which the ex-club associated Herbert Spencer innovated, the fact that Darwin's own words showcased that he was not only aware but supportive of the social application of his survival of the fittest ideology into the human systems, in 1871, the descent of man, Darwin noted, quote, the weak members of civilized societies propagate their kind. No one who has attended to the breeding of domestic animals will doubt that the, this must be highly injurious to the race of man. It is surprising how soon a want of care, or care wrongfully directed, leads to the, deg uh, the degradation of the domestic race, but excepting in the case of man itself, hardly any one is so ignorant as to allow the worst animals to breed. So a eugenics philosophy through and through, and a racist philosophy at that. In 1869, letter to Galton, Darwin wrote, quote, My dear Galton, I have only read about 50 pages of your book, but I must exalt myself, else something else will go wrong in my inside. I do not think I will ever in all my life read anything more interesting and original, and how well and clearly you put every point. You have made a convert of an opponent. Just to make it clear, and that was the finishing of that, just to make it clear, for those who may still be confused, Malthus's theory served as the basis of Darwin's interpretation of natural selection. This, in turn, served as the basis for Galton's theory of eugenics and Herbert Spencer's theory of social Darwinism, ultimately a more, quote, hands-off approach, unquote, to weeding out the unfit in a race for diminishing returns. And so, with that, I think we'll pick up where we left off tomorrow with this article, the article... The next section is going to be anti-Darwinian approaches to evolution. So it looks like we'll be going into alternative systems to that approach. And I'm just making a note here that we will pick up with this tomorrow.
and we'll go through the next section. Uh, sorry, I'm doing I'm multitasking here. So again, that that's a great lineage of sort of what we see now with the social engineers and the social engineering that's going on is definitely a more hands off approach, right? But there's still these tech techniques are used to push this Darwinian Malthusian uh, social Darwinism in the world today. And there's still not just a view of, of genes that, you know, adapt and then are surviving because they're the most adaptable and able to be therefore the most fit, but that we see that there are then the unfit, right? And there's, there's people that are judged as the genes that shouldn't go on through these social control systems. And then there's implementations of eugenics that aren't just nature and it's not just happening naturally this survival of the fittest theory right which uh i think was actually you know galton that came up with the survival of the fittest not actually darwin from his book but uh darwin's book the origin of species uh just pulling it up here right the full title of the book the origin of species is on the origins of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of the favored races in the struggle for life. So who are the favored races? You know, what does that mean? This is an inherent racist philosophy uh, that was used by the British Empire to extend their rule and justify their global domination and scheme to uh colonize the entire planet and then we'll see you know how that has gone underground or we'll we can connect in to see that this didn't just go away with the american revolution that this philosophy and this worldview is still being promoted and uh carried out today as well and that was the point of bringing in this article to understand you know how this might be influencing um, cybernetic theory or how that could be influencing some of the World Economics Forum's uh, thinking. And that's exactly what this article gets into, uh, just foreshadowing a little bit, is the Limits to Growth and Population Control book, uh, again, put forth by thinkers from uh, steering committees and think tanks like the Club of Rome. And then it will also be getting into... Uh, Norbert Wiener and the Rise of Cybernetics, Cybernetics for Global Governance, and the Macy Conferences on Cybernetics, as well as uh, tying that together in a nice little way so we can start to see some of the lineage of where the World Health Organization or the World Economic Forum and some of these uh, UNESCO and other eugenicists like Julian Huxley and their thinking comes from, and not just where it comes from, but this is again a sort of a worldview adopted by and not only just tailor made, but put forward by racist thinking, by uh, thinking that some people are better than others, that some pigs are all animals are equal except for the pigs are better than the rest of the animals, or whatever the saying is from Animal Farm. Um, but yeah, that's a good article that we'll have to continue on with today as or tomorrow, as I personally am all out of time. But 
um, at that, after that, there's more clips this week that I'd like to play into the show having to do with what we've been talking about so far with cybernetics and uh, some references that I'd like to still get in if we can get through it. So we're out of time today, uh, but we'll exit with uh, an intro song those might recognize from the bio, Cywar, a little jingle. It's not like a song. There's not uh, lyrics. It's just the X, X, the uh, outro track here that we'll be doing. And then uh, we'll be continuing on with the falling into the movement traps and going down uh, and exploring, uh, what is it, like digging out the, the rabbit hole <laughs> of these movement traps and, and fleshing out how these grander movements work in our lives and how our world is shaped by these grander narratives as well. And that these are also revolutionary movements. And then we'll get back to the fiber in the minds of men and, uh, you know, where we're headed with the transhumanism and, and all that as well. So I appreciate everyone's time listening today. Uh, you can find the article we were referring to in the notes, as well as the opening clips, uh, as, as well as uh, any other information that came out of this show. You can support Freedoms Rising by going to freedomsrising.live and signing up for the email list there. Support me, tylerbloyer.com. Or, yeah, go to tylerbloyer.com and you can sign up for my email newsletter. I send these episodes out after they're released as an update to let you know what we've been doing and an easy way for you to get in your inbox when these episodes come out. So you can do that. Uh, that's a way currently to support me as well is just by getting on the email list. So you can be aware of our future projects and things that we're going to roll out in the future over here at Freedoms Rising and TylerBloyer.com. You can also find my work on the One Great Work Network and other content creators there that uh, are putting out good information. And it's not the problem with a site like that is I don't promote and support every person's philosophy and theory on that site, but it is another place that we post our work. So those three different outlets and then all the audio feeds and video feeds of freedomsrising.live. I try to make it accessible, not just Freedoms Rising, but accessible for the work of that I've done. I've put in quite a bit of effort to make my work available and put it out in the different outlets out there so it's more permanent and hopefully lasts through time. And again, though, I've got to go today, so we'll talk to you guys tomorrow. And thank you for participating in the rise of freedom. And by doing so, you are freeing more minds with Freedoms Rising. All right, we'll catch you guys next time. Thanks.